Welcome to Commercial Conversations Over Coffee, the show where two college dropouts turned real estate millionaires discuss all aspects of commercial real estate investing. Now, welcome your hosts, Tyler Cobble and apartment guy, Bruce Peterson. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Commercial Conversations Over Coffee. I am one of your hosts, Tyler Cobble. Bruce, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. How are you doing? I am doing well. I, uh, we had a very interesting week. I'm sure you had something very similar, obviously, going on in Austin. You guys had it worse than we did, right, with all the ice and the snow? Well, we're definitely, let, let's, how do we say this? We're, we're not as well prepared as much in the country because we don't get this cold. You know, we got down no. to zero degrees, and there's damage, carnage, wreckage everywhere. One of our properties, we have roughly 30 units that are either damaged or absolutely completely destroyed. So we're That's having crazy. to relocate people. Uh, we're going to have to condemn a few units until we can get them repaired. Um, so all of that in with an imminent domain claim that we're going through right now with the city of Austin. They're going to take part of our property and on the same property. So we're working through that right now. There's a chance. That's kind of them. Well, I mean, uh, honestly, I look at it. It's for the betterment of the neighborhood. It's going to make a better uh, main street that we're on. We're going to lose a building out of it as long as they compensate me appropriately. You know, it's probably not going to be as good as having all 18 buildings, but, you know, they're going to pay me for the building they take if they end up taking one. So it could be worse. It's going to make the neighborhood better. We're going to take a little bit up front, um, but yeah, we'll work through it. But the, the nice thing about this to me is it's another piece of experience for me that I've never dealt with. So now I was going to say, yeah, tool in my belt to, to be able to help people through because, you know, not many people have dealt with what I'm about to go through. So, I mean, what's what's the experience been so far? Do they just send you a letter and say, hey, we're planning on building a freeway here? Or, like, how's that work? Right. So they are they've already come out and done a lot of surveys and we're getting to the point where they're going to start making offers. So they know what they're doing. Uh, they've got a bond approval to fund all the projects that they're going to be running through here. Uh, you know, they're creating bigger right of ways. They're creating some bike paths, some walking paths, some sidewalks. So it's all for it's all for the better. Um, you know, but they've uh, let us know that it's coming soon. So they will apparently give us uh, an initial value and we can either take it or leave it. But well, we can't leave it, but we can take it. I was going to say they're going to force you, right? <laughs> yeah, if we can test it, you know, then we'll go through the court system and, you know, we get one shot at contesting it. And then we hire an attorney if it comes to that. Hopefully it'll go well. I've got a really, really, probably one of my best friends is actually on TxDOT, Texas Department of Transportation. I've been talking with him a little bit about it because they deal with this all the time. When they're going to build a new toll road or a new interstate um, at the federal level, TxDOT will get involved in this eminent domain process. So he goes through it all the time. Um, so he's walking me through it. And he said, look, we're not trying to take advantage of you. I promise. A lot of people think that they get really bent out of shape, but we're going to try our best to give you fair value for your property. We're not trying to lowball you at all. I said, okay. So it, it's nice to have somebody in my back pocket that's gone through it. This is city level. He's state level. So it's a little different. It's not his group doing it, but he's been through it a hundred times. So it, it, it'll be good. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, just bought a building yesterday. What'd so you buy? Pretty excited about that. Um, it was uh, that, that little 1,260 square foot office that we talked about next door to yeah. the wash. Yeah. Um, so pretty excited about that. It's a, it's a small building in East Nashville. Um, 
but you know, it's it's my neighborhood, so I'm I'm all for buying just about anything over here that makes sense, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the nice thing about having you know the criteria that I have is that I can make just about anything in East Nashville work because that's you know we have so many I guess efficiencies of scale. Uh, because of that, you know, I mean, Bruce and I have a have a property management company that operates largely in East Nashville. My commercial real estate brokerage operates largely in East Nashville. You know, our office is over here. I spend the majority of my time over here. And so just it's easy to pick up these little 1,200 square foot deals and, and roll with it, right? Well, that's really cool. I know you've been talking about it for a while. It's a, it's a really neat building. And again, being right next door to one of your other projects, that's really cool. Yeah, uh, let me see. I mean, maybe we should pull it up, show everybody what it is. Yeah, it was built in the early 1900s, right? It was. It is, uh, yeah, it's it's really cool because it's on a, uh, let's see if I can share my screen here. So 1100 Douglas Avenue. It's uh, it's a commercially zoned home, which everybody loves in East Nashville. I mean, that's it's just such a, it gives you a very unique kind of, kind of feel for your business, right? And you can see right here, it's actually got one of the largest billboards in East Nashville, which is crazy. Like if we tore that down, you could not get a permit for that again. Um, it's pretty cool. It's actually at a, a, you can't tell from here, but this is a corner lot at one of the busiest intersections um, in East Nashville. And the wash is right here. Um, you know, that, that six bay car wash that we're doing. So right. it's uh, they used it as an Airbnb before. Um, we're looking at you know filling it with uh, with an office user, um, but you know for anybody interested, if you're if you're watching us live on YouTube or you're watching the video on YouTube, and you kind of get a feel for how we put our marketing together whenever we're going through these projects, you know, three D tours right now. Uh, that's a that's a very big deal. We've got tons of groups from across the country that are taking tours without having to be in Nashville, especially you know in a in a uh, post-COVID world. That makes a big difference. So you can see it's just outside of downtown Nashville in East Nashville over here. Um, and uh, well, zoomed in probably too far. But this is where the wash is. So pretty cool little project. Pretty excited about it. I mean, it was uh, it's definitely on the smaller side, but you know, why not? Right. It's a place that it's an area of Nashville that's maybe not exploding yet, but it's coming, right? The, the spread of revitalization is coming that way. So it's a good place to, to kind of get in, I, I guess, kind of early, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it totally is. It's, uh, it's, it's been fun working on that because, you know, now with, uh, with Hamilton, I've, I've got a team built. And so it's no longer Bruce looking at me going, hey, what the hell are you doing? It's uh, me and a team, and we look a lot better than we did before. Um, so it's been fun, you know, having Andy and Jordan um, on board working on all of this stuff with me because they're so much better at it than I am. Don't tell them that. <laughs> but that's how it's <laughs> supposed to be, right? <laughs> that's right. That's how it's supposed to be. You're supposed to surround yourself with a, with a phenomenal team, and I'm, and I'm lucky to have done that. Um, so today is going to be a bit of a different episode than what we've done in the past. Um, you know, Bruce and I created uh, a couple of underwriting spreadsheets that we use to underwrite every single deal. Uh, really, Bruce originally created it, and then I took his, modified it for commercial. Uh, but it's a, it's a spreadsheet. I mean, man, when I first started getting into underwriting, some of these spreadsheets are so unbelievably complex and just convoluted that I couldn't figure out what was going on. And when Bruce showed me his, I was like, wow, it's like literally a just you walk through the steps <laughs> and, and you're done and you can see numbers really easily. And so 
since we've been talking, you know, we did a video on, on underwriting commercial real estate. Um, I think it would be appropriate to talk about underwriting multifamily and to go through not just the numbers, but Bruce's whole process for, you know, when he's looking at an apartment building, right? I mean, I think that that's a pretty appropriate part of underwriting is figuring out your plans and what you're going to do. So do you have a specific property that, that you'd like to underwrite today, or are we just going to kind of walk through everything? Well, we're going to do something. I redacted the name because there are NDAs signed. So I don't want anybody to know the exact property it was because that would be totally unethical, unfair, not right. appropriate to do. So I've stripped out the name, called it Sample Property Way. So yeah, I've got an actual deal that I actually kind of ran through my system. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is not just the numbers, what number goes into that block and what the, you know, how everything is populated, because a lot of it, it's going to be working on macros and, and formulas and, you know, self-populating areas. But we're going to go into some of the art because it's as much an art as it is a science, um, because yep. you got to be able to look at a financial and go, oh, okay, well, it, why is there no payroll this month? Why is the payroll so low? Why is the payroll too high? It's not just, what's the payroll? Plug that into the spreadsheet and let's go. Well, there might be lots of reasons that payroll number is inappropriate for your use. So we're gonna go into some of that, You know, what, what you're looking for, the anomalies, the one-offs, the things that just make no sense for you as a buyer. Yeah, I'm excited because, you know, I'll be asking questions. I mean, you know, Bruce is still teaching me about multifamily. I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm an expert on multifamily by any means. So it'll be fun to, to go through this and have some commentary as well. And if you're interested in these spreadsheets, if you actually enjoy how they're laid out, we've got a link to them in the description below. If you're listening on the podcast, um, just go over to our YouTube channel um, or you can buy them. I think they're on, just on my website right now. We need to get them on the three, C3 podcast website too. Uh, but just tylercobble.com slash models um, and you can get them there. Uh, but yeah, Bruce, let's dive on in, man. So how many uh, how many units we got? What, what kind of property are we underwriting? All right. So everybody can see the screen, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, it is. It is shared. And also, okay. if you're joining us live, feel free to feel free to drop some questions in the uh, in the live chat. All right, so this is a 100-unit property that was sent to me uh, probably about two or three weeks ago, and I ran it through my system to see if it's going to work out. I'm not going to tell you if it's going to work out or not yet. We're just going to start plugging in some numbers and see what we get up, uh, come up with. So, yeah, it's a 100-unit property in Central Texas. Um, I know their whisper price because I have a relationship with the broker, but you know, even if you don't have a really, really strong relationship, they're usually going to tell you what they expect it to sell at because you have to have some number to work from. But uh, so we'll just start diving in. So up across the top, well, let's look up here first, right? Input cells and formula cells. The input cells shaded in blue, those are things that you're going to actually type information into. If it's not shaded blue, you do not type shit in there. You're gonna screw things up because it's gonna be populated from another part of the spreadsheet or there's gonna be a macro or a formula in that cell that will factor everything for you. So do not be putting things into white cells. Yeah, I like how you here, have that at the very top, like input right. cells, blue. <laughs> so if you see that, it says, heads up, you're trying to edit a part of the spreadsheet that shouldn't be changed accidentally, right? So I'm trying to give warning to people that I can't keep you from, uh, as far as I can tell, I'm not a, a spreadsheet whiz by any means, but I can't think of a way to keep you from being able to change it. But at least I can tell you, are you sure you want to change this? Because you could really screw this up. So, yeah. And the right. thing is, you know, and one thing I will say to that, Bruce, while we're, while we're talking about it is, 
I mean, yep. you change one of those cells, you'll mess up one formula and your number, your, the whole spreadsheet will be off. Like this thing is a very fine tuned machine and you want to keep it that way. So if one of those cells gets changed, you're not going to be looking at the deal properly. So that's why it's so important not to touch them. Right. And to tie into that, if you decide you want to buy this, totally fine. We'd love to sell it to you. Once you have it, it's yours. Right. Um, but, you know, what I would probably do is make a copy of it. And then you could start playing around with the spreadsheet however you choose because yeah, make your own modifications. Everybody, right. Everybody's brain works a little bit differently. The way I've laid this out works perfectly for me. And I think I've done it pretty self-explanatory, very intuitively designed. But maybe it's not the way you want it to be laid out. So basically, we're going to be going through concepts and breaking down areas of the spreadsheet, what they mean, why they are the way they are, and the rationale behind it. Once you get good at this, well, then you can start making the changes that you want to. I got a spreadsheet probably eight to nine years ago, and it was good enough to get me started, but it didn't work for what I wanted. So I created all kinds of tabs because this used to be just one spreadsheet. Well, now I have all kinds of other tabs across the bottom, takeover budget, projections, uh, closing costs, rent grid. Uh, so I, I've got all kinds of stuff in here uh, that worked for me. So, all right. So let's get started. The top of the property. The first blue thing you're going to see, sample property way. You're going to put your property's name there. It's not going to factor into anything, right? It's just your way of keeping track of what this spreadsheet is for because you're going to have multiples of these. You know, you're going to underwrite maybe 10, 20, 30 properties a month potentially. So be sure, bring up this, this spreadsheet, make a copy, and call it something different. If you start altering this and forget to save a copy, well, you're going to have to strip all the stuff out every time you start again, and it's going to get to be a nightmare. So Yeah, the nice thing about doing that, too, is that you can save them and keep them organized. I mean, I can go back and look at spreadsheets that, you know, or deals that Bruce and I underwrote two years ago. And, you know, because there may have been something special or unique about that spreadsheet that we ended up, you know, changing or tweaking just for that one deal. And so it makes it that much easier for me to just go, oh, well, we did that on 1100 Douglas. Let me go make a copy of that spreadsheet and then just start filling it in from there. So, well, yeah, where it really comes in interesting is when something comes up for sale again, right? Because things are going to yeah. come up for sale every two to four years, usually, or it's very common. So it's nice to go back and look at your old underwriting, see what it underwrote at last time and see what they're trying to sell it at this time. So it, it's a good history of what's gone on in your market. So, you know, this is the top, you know, the, the property name. Then right below that is YOC, Year of Construction, 1988. I want to know that because if it's be, uh, before 1977, I believe, or 78, you're going to start dealing with possible lead and asbestos and things. So I always want to keep in mind, when was it built? So I know what to be watching for. After that, again, this is just my warning to you, my kind of telling you about the spreadsheet. So we're going to break it down. You're going to have the deal. You're going to have operating income. You're going to have operating expenses, the resulting NOI or profit before non-operating items and debt service. Then you're going to have those non-operating expenses, which will include your, your mortgage, uh, your capital ex, uh, expenditures. Uh, then you're going to come down into profitability. Then you have your return projections. Now, when I say profitability, I'm talking about you know your year-over-year cash-on-cash returns your return projections, which will have your total return dollars, your total return percentage, your total annualized return, and your equity multiple. And then I've got an IRR table built out over, uh, for a one to 10 year hold. So 
let's come back up to the top now. Let's start with the deal. What What's the deal with the deal, right? So you have costs and you have financing. Bruce, First were you scrolling like, through on that? Let me let me yeah. jump in real quick. Were you scrolling through? Yeah, I was. Um, for some reason, the screen is not moving. Okay, let's do this. Let me pull this to the side so I can watch what's going on. Oh, yeah, see, that's not working at all. Hmm. Let's see. Yeah, I don't know why. Go back uh, to screen share. Okay, I've got it on share. Okay, so now I can see your mouse moving. So now go back to the uh, spreadsheet. Right. You don't see it, do you? No. Okay, I think... Let's stop sharing. I think I'm sharing the wrong screen, maybe. Let's try that again. So share screen. Let me share that screen. There we go. Now I see it scrolling, right? Uh, it is scrolling, but let me see. For some reason now, it's not showing up on the screen share. All right, bear with us. Okay, now try it again. Okay, so there we go. We are scrolling perfect. through now. All right. Yay. All right. So, anyways, the spreadsheet is broken down into areas. We're going to start with the deal, but then you have operating income here, operating expenses, NOI, uh, non operating expenses, your profitability, or basically your cash flow, uh, your return projections, and then your IRR table. So, we're going to go through all those in turn. We're going to start at the top. Let's look at the deal itself. So the deal is 100 units on this one. Uh, they're, they're re I, I guess their hope is 13.5 million. That's what we're, we're gonna call a whisper price. So I'm gonna reach out to the, to the broker say, hey, look, I, I think I might be interested in this project. Uh, what do you think it's gonna list for? What do you think your seller's gonna require? What's the whisper? And they'll tell me what they think it's gonna sell for. Now, they may be totally wrong. Maybe nobody will give them 13.5, but this is their expectation on pricing. Below that, now remember, these are all blue, so that means you're going to be putting things in these boxes. So capitalized rehab, that means that is some rehab dollars that you are going to spend, but you're going to be able to get rolled into your loan. Most of the time, your agency debt, for sure, and most of your lenders across the board, they are only going to loan money to you to improve the property, not to fix the property. And what I mean by that, if it's deferred maintenance, something that should have been kept up over the years, but it wasn't, when you buy it, the roof is in really poor condition. You have potholes all over the parking lot. You have sagging foundations, things like that. That's considered deferred maintenance. It should have been kept up over the life of the property, but it wasn't. So they're not going to give you money uh, in loan dollars for fixing those things up. They're going to give you loan dollars to fix up things that will add value to the property. If you're going to do unit upgrades, if you are going to remodel something, if you're going to uh, put in some better landscaping. So things that you aren't trying to repair, you're trying to make better that they believe will add value to the property. Uh, so that's very different than commercial real estate. So if you're if you're coming from the, the commercial background, you know, typically your loan, you get a line of credit to do whatever you need to on the property. 
Um, and I would imagine the big difference is the agency debt. It's it's probably not a commercial versus multifamily thing. It's probably more so when you're doing multifamily projects, you're using agency debt instead of local lenders more often than not. Right. So yeah, that is a little bit different. Um, so I'm just looking at something here. I'll fix it real quick as we're talking. But yeah, it is a little bit different. I usually don't get things rolled in on loans uh, for rehab. A couple of reasons. First of all, I am at the mercy of the bank to get those projects done. I have to go fund those projects in multifamily, get them fixed, submit invoices and payment receipts, and then get reimbursed for it. So they take my money out of escrow and give it back to me once I spent the money. I, you know, that's just too much control for them. Sometimes I need to do it, but anytime I can eliminate that step, I'm going to do it. So I don't usually roll rehab into my loan. Um, now, if it's a huge takeover uh, and turnaround project that I'm going to spend millions of dollars on, then yeah, I probably will. Because if I can only have to come out of pocket 20% or 30% for that rehab, instead of having to fund all the rehab up front, there's value to that, definitely. But so the next box is total acquisition cost. So we're just taking the purchase price and adding to it the capitalized rehab or the rehab that's going to be rolled into the loan. And so let's say if I had $200,000 that I was going to roll into the loan, it would take my total acquisition cost of $13.7 million. It's a white box, meaning that it will factor that for you. Do not start screwing with that white box, please. The next thing is non-capitalized rehab. Okay, so this is stuff that I'm going to raise on the front end if I'm doing a syndication. If I'm not doing a syndication, it's just money that I have to bring out of pocket to fund these rehab projects. I am now going to change this from blue to white. Because what happens if you go across the bottom screen, bottom of the screen, you have this ribbon, you have takeover budget projections, closing costs, rent grid, standalone copy of rehab projects. So it's going to populate from these spreadsheets down here, from these tabs down here, right? So rehab cap projects. See, 678000 is the total rehab dollars that I projected for this property. So six hundred seventy-eight. So if you come back here to our main page, it's 678. So it's populating from that other tab. So I needed to turn it white. So remember, it's going to populate from the other tab. So don't be putting a number in here. It'll do it for you. Closing costs exactly the same way. I have a tab down here that we will go through. But you have some white boxes. You have some blue boxes. But we're going to come up with our, uh, our closing costs. It'll be figured out for you on this first page. Operating capital, that for me, everybody will have their own approach to this, but what I like to do is have operating capital equal to one month's expenses, including my debt service, principal, and interest. Even if it's an interest-only loan, I still want the entirety of the debt service for a month to be factored in, principal and interest. I'm trying to be conservative here. You could argue that, well, hey, it's principal. I mean, it's, uh, it's interest only. So I don't really need the operating capital to reflect the principal. I'm trying to be conservative. So I want all of it in there, even though I won't be doing any principal pay down for the first anywhere from one to six or seven years. Yeah. I mean, the philosophy yeah. behind that is, you know, you'd rather be conservative and lose out on a deal than be aggressive and win because you know, it, it always comes back to bite you. I mean, I've never seen a project that, that didn't end up costing more, right? Like e even if you're conservative. Right. So the operating capital really is to cover you through the first 30 days of operating because you might have some bills due that you haven't collected your rent for yet. So let's say you take over on the fifth, sixth, seventh of the month 
and the previous owner collected all the rents, you're not going to start billing your own rents until the following first. So you might not have a lot of income coming in until some of your bills have to be paid. That's a lot of the reason the operating capital is there. I use it for an ongoing reserve fund. That is kind of a safety net for me. I don't ever want this property to have less than $122,811 in my operating account ever in case some weird unforeseen expense comes up like, you know, we have a ruptured mainline um, plumbing uh, pipe coming from the street that blows up that I didn't anticipate. You know, I want to make sure I have a, a sizable amount of money there. It, maybe I have a claim on the property. You know, going through all the stuff we're going through right now in Austin with fr freezing pipes, water damage everywhere, ceilings collapsing. You know, the um, believe it or not, the deductible on my policy to file the claim for insurance is $50,000. If I didn't have anything there because I couldn't afford to have extra reserve money sitting on the sidelines for emergency purposes, well, now I'm screwed. I don't have $50,000 maybe to pay that deductible. So now I can't repair my property. So that's the reason for operating capital. It's those two things. It's better to have that money there than to have to go back to your investors and ask for more. I mean, that's that's really the, the philosophy behind that. Yeah, look at, look at it as a cash insurance policy, right? That's safety cash there. Don't be tempted to dip into it. Maybe you do because that emergency did pop up that you didn't foresee. Before you start sending out distributions to your investors, you better build that back up to where it needs to be before you send out any, uh, any distributions. And that's where if you're going to be a syndicator and raise other people's money to buy these properties, let them know what's going on. Let them know that, look, I had to come out of the reserves $50,000 for a deductible. Guys, the, the next $50,000 in profit, uh, profitability or cash flow, I'm going to reserve to bulk up our, um, our emergency fund again. If you don't let them know what's going on and you're afraid to tell them these things or you don't want to take $50,000 to bulk it back up, you're setting yourself for failure down the road. So that's a big part of doing these deals is being upfront and transparent with everybody. Your next box is called negative carry. What negative carry is, let's say you buy something that's not profitable on day one. It's a deep value add property. It, maybe it's only 60 or 70% occupied, and you're going to be losing money until you can get it up to 85% occupied or 90% occupied. You have to account for that money that you're going to lose on a monthly basis until you get back to profitability. That's called negative carry. Let's say the entirety of the first year, you project you're going to lose $200,000. Well, how are you going to fund that? You have to put that money on top of the operating capital. I think this is a completely different bucket. Now, it could be in the same physical bank account if you want. That's okay. But you have to have money raised for an emergency fund and the negative carry because you got to be paying bills while you're not profitable. If you don't think about that, it, you'd be surprised how many people don't think about that. They get themselves into a bind, and then they have to go back out to the investors and raise more money. If you buy it by yourself, well, now you're coming out of your back pocket to fund this business. This business should run as its own system without you putting money into it from the outside. Right? It's supposed to be a self-sufficient business. Put money in there for negative carry to get you through that non-profitable uh, period. Yeah, we just talked to, about a group last week that we had looked at that, that didn't do that. And the consequences right. that they're facing because of that. I mean, you know, the it was a a, a vacant property that they had to carry um, through the lease up, and there was no negative carry to cover the you know tens of thousands of dollars in, in carry costs every month. So that's not a fun situation to find yourself in. 
Right. Try going to the bank and say, hey, I'll make my loan payments when I'm finally profitable. That's not going <laughs> yeah, to happen. Out the door and you'll never get another deal with them because they realize yep. you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. So, yeah, you have to be prepared for that stuff. Um, as long as you do this okay, do this properly, it's all going to work out. You just need to know how to build this out. So next one is total cash raise. That is going to be over here. You see your down payment, closing costs, operating capital, non-capitalized rehab, and your negative carry. So the down payment we're going to go into below now, your financing. So, you know, I'm going to always assume a 20 to 30% down payment until I know differently by talking to my lender or my mortgage broker. So I started with a 20% down payment. That's the most, that's the lowest down payment you're going to get right now. Most of your down payments nowadays are going to be 25 to 35%, but I have to have a place to start, right? So this pass through the underwriting is the first pass. Is this property worth pursuing and scheduling an initial tour with the broker to go see the property? You know, once you go to that level and you go tour the property, you think, okay, the property looks good. My first pass, the underwriting looked okay. Well, now you're going to start firming things up because a lot of these are assumptions and projections on your part. Once you get to, through this point, you think I'm going to make an offer on this. Well, now you need to start firming up the rehab budget that you've put together because you're going to put a rehab budget together, this non-capitalized rehab based on experience of you or an experienced operator on your team. Because we've done this a lot. We know roughly what it's going to cost to fix these different things. Once you get the tour done, you think, I still like the property. I'm going to submit an offer. You're going to get actual contractors involved to come out and firm up your assumptions. So again, this is basically just a first pass. <clears throat> Excuse me. So we're going to assume a 20% down payment. So 20% uh, down payment on a $13.5 million purchase price is $2.7 And as you see up here, there is a formula in that cell. Do not screw with that cell, please. Um, it's going to factor that for you. You're going to tell the spreadsheet what the down payment percentage is, but it's going to factor out how much that dollar is. So it's just going to take the $13.5 million purchase price, subtract the down payment. There's your loan amount, $10,800,000. I'm going to make an assumption on interest rates because I'm active in the market. I know what they roughly are. I can probably source 3% or maybe even a little bit lower Interest rates have been going up, so I'm going to try to be conservative here and assume it's going to be a 3.5% interest rate. My amortization schedule is 30 years. Now, there's a difference between term and amortization schedule. Term, we don't have it here because it's, it, it's not going to affect the underwriting or the numbers. What term means, how long are you taking this money out from the bank? You have a five-year term or a 10-year term, meaning at the end of five or 10 years, you have now got to pay that loan back either with a balloon payment or you're going to have to pay it off equally in equal amounts over that uh, five to 10 year period. Amortization schedule says, okay, I'm taking out a 10 year loan, but the bank is going to allow me to structure the payments as if it were going to be carried for 30 years. So they're going to divide up the payment over 30 years. At the end of the 10th year, I will not have paid off all the principal because it was only held for 10 years on a 30 year amortization schedule. So at the end of that 10th year, now I have a big balloon payment that I have to make to pay off the loan. What most people will do at that point is refinance the property, put new debt on it, or you will sell it, pay off the loan, what's left on it, and then pocket the rest. 
So that's the difference between amortization and term. Again, on this property, I'm probably going to be able to get a 10 or a 12-year loan, but they're going to act as though it was a 30-year loan when we factor my payments. So below that, debt service. That is not PITI like you're used to in single family. That is principal and interest only. PITI is your house payment. That includes interest and taxes. We will account for that in a different line item below in the operating expenses. Debt service truly is only your principal and your interest, the payment made for the debt itself, not the insurance, not the taxes. <clears throat> I've broken it out over to the side because some of your loans will be interest only. So I want to know what part of that $581,000 annually is devoted to principal, how much of it's devoted to interest. That's really the top portion of it, right? Over here on the right, we've got notes. You take whatever notes are uh, uh, important to you, things that you need to look for, ask the broker when you go do a tour, um, and just whatever makes sense to you. So next, we're going to go into operating income. I have this broken down. This is my spreadsheet. This is what works for me. So I'll explain it as we go. This first column, E, is um, right here. You see current. This is the way it's currently being run from an, uh, from an income standpoint. The current, when you get down here to operating expenses, is my assumption of the way it's going to need to be run from an expense standpoint. I can't just blindly take their expenses and plug it in because they might have cooked the book, so to speak. They may have, maybe it's a 20-unit a property you're looking to buy that show, well, let's do it this way. Let's say it's a 50 or 60-unit property you're looking to buy, and there's nothing there for payroll. You think, oh, wow, look how cheaply I can run this property. Well, no, you can't. Maybe they have another property down the street. They're running all the payroll for your target property through that other property down the street. There is going to be payroll on this property at a 50 or 60 unit property. If you go by their numbers that show nothing for payroll, you're going to get yourself screwed up because you don't know that they're paying all the staff for your property, your target property from that other property. So you have to be very careful. So again, the current, this is what they're currently collecting in income on an annual basis, but this is the way you think it needs to be run, not the way they're running it. You're going to take a look at the way they're running it for a baseline, but then you're going to have to figure out where they're wrong, where you think they're not high enough on an expense item, or they're too high on an expense item, and you're going to have to figure that out for yourself. So this is your current. Now, the second column here, F, that is pro forma. That is your first year of ownership. This is the way I think I'm going to run it. I'm going to take their current income and make some assumptions. Do I think I can get the rents higher? Do I have a way to add additional income streams that they maybe have never even thought about including? That happens all the time. We implement income streams that we have proven time after time after time that the person we're buying from doesn't know about, hasn't thought about. Like what? What do, you, what do you typically you know, do? Okay, so additional income streams. If I buy a property in Texas that doesn't have uh, covered parking, I'm going to build covered parking. I know in a specific neighborhood what I can rent those spaces for. In San Antonio, I can usually rent those for $20 to $25 a spot. In Austin, I can usually get $40 to $50 a spot. I know because I have experience. If you don't have experience and you're trying to do this, that's why you need a coach. That's why you need to be a member of somebody else's GP or bring somebody into your GP that has the experience to give you these numbers. You're not going to know this stuff, but that's where that additional income stream will come from. Now, 
what some people will do, let's say an additional income stream is washer and dryer rental, right? Let's say I can go to a washer and dryer rental company and rent from them a set uh, for $30, a washer to dryer for $30. Then I'm going to pass it on to the renter, to, the, to my tenant. They're going to rent it from me now for $40, right? So $30 cost, $40 income. A lot of people will think, okay, well, I get the $40 in income that I put up here. If you don't account for the expense of having to rent that washer and dryer set initially, you're going to be screwed up. <clears throat> what a lot of people will do also is do what's called a contra expense or a contra income item. They will say, I'm going to rent this for 40, but it's going to cost me 30. So I'm going to make $10 per set that I deploy. And they're only going to account for $10. That's not the right way to keep books. The right way to keep books is book the entire expense at $30 per set and the entire income at $40 per set. You need to track the full expense and the full income. If your income starts to change because you're only accounting for the $10 spread, you don't know what's causing the problem. If your income starts to drop, well, it's starting to drop. Why? I don't know. I'm only looking at a net number. I don't know that my income is staying steady, but my cost is going up. So if you're not tracking both things, you won't see that your cost is going up maybe. So you need to keep it straight, the full expense and the full income. So those are just some of the things though that fall under additional income streams. Uh, miscellaneous other income, that is, that is everything outside of rubs and laundry, and we'll go into that. Laundry for the most part is gonna be your laundry rooms. What kind of income are they generating? Rubs is ratio utility billing. You get a master bill for most properties that are older because you only have one water meter for the entire property for the, the supply water. So now what you can legally do is take that bill and ration that out over your, in, uh, your tenant base because it's them that's using the majority of the water. You can rub back you know, or allocate back 70 to 95% of that water bill depending on the attributes of your property. So at the very least, you can, you know, allocate back out 70% of your water bill to your tenants because, again, they're using 70% of the water in that case. That's what rubs are. Um, it's not technically called a rub when you're dealing with billbacks for pest control and trash collection and gas. Um, and there's something else I'm missing in there, I'm sure. But those are truly fees. That's allocated income. Um, you're taking those bills for pest control and for trash collection, and you're going to bill that back out to the residents. You're not supposed to make money on those. Those are not profit centers for you. It's you offsetting your expense because your residents are using most of that expense item, right? I lump it all into rubs. Some people will break that out, but that's basically what rubs are. Anytime you have a bill that you're going to send out a, uh, a portion of that bill to your tenants to pay to offset some of that bill. Then laundry, we talked about that. Miscellaneous other income is any anything else. Uh, application fees, administration fees, late fees, vending machine income, insurance. If you provide insurance for your residents, you're going to put all that other income in there. Are you going to say something? Uh, uh, no, I was actually literally going to ask you. You know, can you define miscellaneous other income? So you you started going into it. So I just. Muted myself. Right. Okay. So again, that's <laughs> everything that doesn't fall into rubs or allocated income, laundry income, or additional income streams. Now you see right below that too, 
I break out outside of additional income streams because maybe the the pre uh, the current owner doesn't know that hey I can provide insurance to my residents and make a small spread on that. For us, we spend I think it's like nine dollars and twenty five cents that we pay for an insurance policy policy for a resident, and then we mark that up to twelve dollars and fifty cents. Um, so we make roughly three dollars per resident to carry their insurance for them. The benefit of that, you know, all of our properties, we, we require you to have insurance or you can't move on to the property. It's liability insurance. If they damage my property, I want to make sure they have insurance lined up that they can cover the damage they caused and it doesn't have to come out of my pocket or my insurance policy. Um, many people will just say, bring me a copy of your insurance to prove that you have it. Now, I will allow you to get your own too. I, I have no problem where you get it from. It doesn't matter to me. Now, I would prefer you get it from me, but I'm not going to require you to get it from me. You can go to your personal insurance company and get it. Just provide proof to me that you have it. I like to provide it for all those that I can because it's my insurance policy with you as an also insured. That way, if you damage anything, I make the claim directly to my insurance provider. I have more control and I'm more likely to find out if you didn't pay your insurance premium and it gets canceled. Um, so I, I like to provide it myself. It's not much of an income stream, but it is an income stream. So that's just another thought. Uh, unit upgrade income. If I'm going to buy the property, a hundred unit property, and part of my plan is to upgrade 20 of those units over a two or three year period. Well, that's what's going to go in here. I'm going to put the additional income that I think I'm going to make per unit per year on this line. Now, remember, just like your allocated income, just like your washer and dryer rental, it's the same thing. Unit upgrade income. Put the entire thing up there. Do not put a net number. So let's walk through that a little bit. Upgrade income. Let's say I'm, I think I'm going to spend, you know, $4,000 per unit to upgrade it, maybe with some uh, granite or some uh, better countertops, maybe pendant lighting, six panel doors, uh, better plumbing fixtures. Uh, I'm going to change the paint on. I'm going to give them upgraded flooring. And let's say it's going to cost me $4,000. I think I can then charge a premium for that one unit of $100 over the normal market rent for this better unit, right? So, that one unit is $100 extra per month. All these numbers are factored on an annual basis. So you take that extra $100 a month, multiply it by 12 months. So that one unit will generate $1,200 more in unit upgrade income for the property. So let's do the same thing. Let's say we're going to upgrade those 20 units we talked about. So 20 units, and you're going to get $100 extra per month in rent. So each month, you're going to generate an extra $2,000 times 12 months. So that's $24,000 extra. So I would come in here. It's a blue cell. So I'm fine to put my own number in there. It's $24,000 on an annualized basis, right? That's for 20 units. Let's say I want to do 20 more units the next year. Well, then this unit upgrade income, $24,000 from the first year, $24,000 more for the second year. So now I'm booking $48,000. That's the way this line is to be used. I'm going to undo what I just did. But that's what I'm talking about here. On this property, I assumed I will do unit upgrades to the tune of $54,000 a year in additional income for those upgraded units. But I don't project I'm going to get any of that done until the end of year three. Now, I will probably get some of it done in year one, some of it done in year two, the rest of it done and finished up in year three. 
But to be conservative, I'm assuming no income bump until the end of the third year. Let's go up to the top. Let's explain this. This is the way my spreadsheet works for me. Again, you do it however you want. You start jacking with some of these columns, you can screw yourself up. So be very, very careful when you start doing that. Pro forma means by the end of year one, after year two, after year three, after year four. What I'm doing in my spreadsheet is I'm showing you that by the end of the first year, this is the way we will be running this property. These are my projections, right? By the end of the first year, it's not saying the first year I'm going to take income from $1.44 million to $1.48 million day one. It's going to take me an entire year to get that income up by that amount of money, right? So by the end of the first year, I project the gross potential rent will be $1,484,000. My vacancy by the end of the first year, I project to be at 10%, right? So if you look up here on 40, projected vacancy rate. This is the rate it was at when I got the financials from the current owner. This is my first year of making my own projections. I project by the end of the first year, right? That pro forma, I will have my vacancy down to 10%. They're at about 12% now. I think I can get that down to 10%. Below that, assumed annual rent increase. Of course, it's not applicable because it's current. There is no annual rent increase. These are the actual current numbers. The second column over here, F, I have a dash. It's a white box. I'm going to cover that in just a second. Why you're not going to put anything in there. It's going to populate from the thing at the bottom called rent grid. And we'll go into that in a second. Okay. So these are my projections going across. This is my pro forma after year one, after year two, after year three, four, five, six, all the way out to after year 10. This top across here, these are my assumptions on a year by year basis. So hopefully that helped clear some of that up, right? So again, by the end of that first year, I think my total net income on line 54, oh, don't want to do that. Didn't mean to do that. So my total net income is $1,473,660 at the end of the first year. So that's saying that month 12, that is my run rate. Going forward, I should be averaging that number until I get to the end of the second year, right? That's how this is broken down. If you have any questions on that, I know it gets a little complicated and hard to follow for some people. But again, my numbers are always at the end of the second year. These are the numbers I project we will be hitting on a run rate basis. So basically, that 24th month, if you take that number and carry it out over 12 months, that's what that should average out to. I hope that makes sense. I know it's a little weird, a little complicated and confusing, but that's the way it's designed. This one right here, year over year income growth. I'm just trying to track how much is my total income growing on a monthly, I mean, on an annualized basis. Mm -hmm. If you look up here, remember, we took our uh, assumed annual rent increase of 3%, 3%, 3%. We're jumping it up by 3% every year. Well, then why the hell is my year-over-year -year income growth only 4.63 or only 2.72% here, 2.64, 2.65. Well, because you have all of these other numbers down here in blue that you're putting in, 
this top is only regarding rent. That's all it is. It's only talking about how much you expect your rent to go up each month. I mean, each year. All these other numbers will go up. See, in year by the end of year three, I project we will be making an additional $54,000 in unit upgrade income. That's why this number went up so dramatically. My rent is projected to go up 3%, but I'm introducing this massive new income stream, so it goes up by 6.29%. Over here, I'm assuming that stays flat. That will never go up. I'm being conservative. Your rents will probably go up on average 3% in my projections. I'm not assuming that same increase in that additional rental income premium that I'm getting. You, you could argue that that 54000 Bruce, should be going up by the same 3%. You're right. It probably will go up by the same 3%. I'm going to assume it stays flat. Same thing with miscellaneous other income. It will probably tick up a little bit each year because all of my costs are going to go up. There's inflation involved. It will probably go up by the same 3% a year. I'm not going to assume that. I'm going to be conservative and assume that it's going to stay flat. If you want to assume the 3% increase, totally fine. You can do that. This is the way I structured my spreadsheet. I also like to be able to track it on a monthly basis because when I'm running the property, I'm managing the property on a monthly budget. So I want to know what should my income be by the end of the first year on a monthly basis. And there it is for year two, year three, year four. So that's basically the entirety of the income. We're going to break that down now, okay? Where am I getting all this from? Remember I told you up here on line 42, oh, line 41, you have nothing in F41. There's a dash. It's white. Don't touch it because it's going to populate from rent grid, okay? So rent grid, I've got this set up. You have market rents, current owner. You have market rents pro forma here on 24, right? So current owner, that's what's currently being collected based on the financials I got from the seller. This is what I think I will have done to market rents by the end of the first year, after year one market rents pro forma. So this is where they are currently set for this property owner. By the end of the first year, I think I can probably bump those rents by 3%. So up here, I'm going to put in all the different unit types, all the different floor plan styles and types. I'm going to put the number of those respective floor plans beside it, the rent for those respective floor plans on a monthly basis, and the square footage, $1.19 per square foot. That's $120,000 monthly, $1.44 million annually. Okay, It's all going to calculate over here. You're going to put in your own numbers here because every single property is going to be different. This specific property had 99 two-bed, ba uh, two one-and-a-half bath townhomes, 99 of them. There was one that they had taken offline to use as a uh, – I believe it was used as a leasing office. That's why while this is a 100-unit property, we saw from the front page that – see up here, it's a 100-unit property. But over here on the rent grid, we're only collecting rent – from 99 units. That's why there's only 99 here. So you carry out all this math. Down here, you've got the exact same mirror going on. So whatever's up here is going to populate. That's why it's white. Don't touch it. It's going to figure it all out for you. You said rent is $1,213 a month. 
I say I project it's going to go up 3% by the end of the first year. It's going to factor for you what that 3% rent increase is going to be. If you take the big number now and you look at your annual rental market income, this is not a net number. This does not factor in vacancy or any of that. This is just market rents, uh, $1,440,000. You come down here now to H40. That number is 3% higher than 1440 because I put in a 3% assumed annual rent increase. That's how this spreadsheet works. That spreadsheet now funnels into the front page. You've got your number there. Your current was 1440000 It populated from your rent grid. Your pro form or the end of the first year, $1,484,000. It came directly from your rent grid, $1,484,000. So that's where that number came from, your vacancy. It's not uh, your vacancy. This is what their actual vacancy was from their financials. These are my assumptions, right? So this is kind of industry average right now. Uh, some properties, some, some markets will be lower. Some of them might only be 5%. Some of them might be 15%. You have to know your sub-market. You have to know that property and what's appropriate for that area. But what we're talking about here now is your vacancy, right? So after current, it's going to start factoring it for you. Here, um, well, let, let's do this. Let's talk about this. Uh, I don't have it up there. I should. So anyway, so your vacancy, there's a difference between economic vacancy and physical vacancy. This number is economic vacancy, so let's type that in. So let me type that in, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. Economic vacancy. Okay. So you have a physical vacancy and an economic vacancy. Physical vacancy means if I have 100-unit property and 10 of them have nobody living in them, then it's 10% physically vacant. Economic vacancy says, okay, I have 100-unit property. 10 of them are vacant, but 20 of them aren't paying. So 10 of them are not vac uh, are not occupied. There's another 10 of them that I can't collect any rent from because they refuse to pay me. So now you have 20 units not contributing income. So your economic vacancy would actually be 20% instead of 10% because you're only collecting from 10% of the projected people, right? So that's the difference. Economic vacancy is going to include physical vacancy, uh, non-collected income, Non-revenue units, meaning you have a unit that you don't collect any rent from because maybe it's a down unit. It's a burned out unit that they haven't repaired and brought back online. It might be a unit that they took and um, they use for uh, maintenance storage. They put all their appliances in there until they need them. All their washers and screws and nuts and bolts in there. Well, that's a non-revenue unit. It's also going to include loss to lease. Lost to lease means if I have a unit that the market rent, if you were to come to me today and want to rent that unit from me, you would pay $1,000. Well, I have somebody that signed a lease on that unit nine months ago, and nine months ago, it was only $900. Current market rent is 1000 You have somebody in that unit from nine months ago that's only paying 900 That gap, that delta, that $100 gap is considered loss to lease. It rents on the market today for a thousand i'm only collecting nine hundred dollars from it that's a hundred dollar loss to lease right so the economic vacancy again is going to be all inclusive it's going to be all the physical vacancy 
all the non-revenue units, all of the lost to lease, all the non-collected rent, it's everything. So while 10% sounds, you know, like that might be okay. That that's, you know, that's pretty high. Well, it's not high because if it's 5% physically vacant, you might have 5% of the additional units not paying or not being able to generate income. So that's an all-inclusive number. So then you take the gross potential rent, subtract out your vacancy, and you get your total rental income, right? So then you take your net rental income and add all these other income streams, your rubs, your laundry, miscellaneous other, additional income, unit upgrade income, whatever else you want to put in there as additional income streams, totally up to you. So it's this all added up equals that number, right? So if you look over here in the right-hand bottom corner, you get your sum of 1,408,490. Well, that's exactly what that number is. So that was a very long explanation. Hopefully it helped. Hopefully you were able to follow me, but that's all the operating income, okay? So next we're gonna go into operating expenses. Okay, we're now on 60. Same exact columns. You've got current ownership. You've got pro forma. You have your after year one, after year two, three, four, five, all the way out to after year 10. I've got the same breakdown, assumed annual expense increase. There is uh, inflation. Even in a fairly non-inflationary environment like we're in now, thing, the cost of goods are always going to go up at least some. Or if not, you, you need to assume they will. If they don't, great, you made out. Always assume it'll go up some. If you think that 3% is not enough, you use whatever you think is appropriate for your area, for your state, for your, for your city, for your submarket, whatever. But you got to come up with something. You, you can't assume that your expenses will stay static forever. That's very reckless, and it's not going to happen. In Texas, my insurance alone might go up 10% a year. My taxes might go up 5 or 10% a year for my property taxes. So you have to assume your your um, your expenses are going to go up at least some. Because, again, even if you keep your payroll at the same level because you're, you're a jerk and you don't give anybody raises ever – well, you can't control insurance and taxes. So you know your stuff's going to go up. It is. So just you have to put some number in there. My default is 3%. I'm going to assume every year my, uh, my expenses are going to go up 3%. Pro forma is going to be the first year that I'm going to operate it. What do I think I'm going to be running this property at on an expenses per unit per year basis, right? So these are, remember, these are all annualized numbers. So I'm going to put in here year, okay? Expenses per unit per year. That's the way the industry is tracked. So I think I'm going to spend $8,918 per unit per year on this property, which when you add that, multiply that by all 100 units, it's $891,765. So that is roughly, that is 60.5% of my total income number. So my total income was one million four hundred seventy-three thousand. My total expenses was were eight hundred ninety-one thousand. That is sixty point five percent of my income goes out the door to expenses. So that's my expense ratio. So the and then I do the same thing here. I break it down monthly because again I'm looking at my PL once I start running this property myself. I'm going to be looking at numbers on a monthly basis, and I want to know what did I project we were going to be spending monthly in expenses. What did I project we were going to be making in income on a monthly basis? It's a way to keep track of what's going on monthly. Okay, so that's your expenses. Now, how did I get these numbers? 
bottom of the spreadsheet, we're going to go to takeover budget. And again, this is where you need somebody very experienced. Oops. Somebody very experienced. We'll take that out. Um, to, to help you know what these numbers should be, a, a good lender will probably be able to help you a lot, but I think you need a coach, a mentor, somebody with experience in your submarket, or somebody that can help you build out these numbers. But we're looking here at operating expenses. You have variable expenses and you have fixed expenses. Staffing, utilities, repair and maintenance, admin, marketing, contract services, and professional fees. Fixed would be insurance, property taxes, franchise taxes, and offsite management fee. Franchise tax, you may or may not have that where you live, where you're going to buy. I have it in Austin and throughout the state of Texas, actually, Tennessee does too, but they calculate it a different way than we do. So you have to know locally, first of all, if there is a franchise or sometimes even an excise tax, you have to know what taxes are in play in your, in your submarket. And you need to know what those rates are. For me in Texas, this is where this property was being underwritten. My franchise tax is 0 0.00331 or three-tenths of 1% basically. But it's only calculated if I make over a million dollars roughly in annual income. Not net income, but annual gross income, meaning how much money did I bring in before I had to pay my expenses? If it's roughly a million dollars or more, then I have to pay this tax rate on every dollar I collect, not just on the dollars above a million. I have to pay it on every dollar I collect as due every year annually. You might not have that where you are. Fine. Take that out. Maybe you do have it, and maybe your rate is 1.5% instead of 0.3%. You better change that to what it needs to be for you, right? I can't tell you what yours is going to be. You have to do your own research. And this is, again, why you need a coach or somebody to work with you on it. Okay, so staffing. Let's go back up to the top now. Staffing is 155350 If you notice, it's in white. I don't want you screwing with that. Come over here, payroll. I have a table built out for payroll. You're going to have your regional manager listed. It's appropriate to bill back the cost of your regional manager if you are large enough to have a regional manager and you are managing this property with your own management company. If not, if you're using a third-party management company, ask them if they plan to bill out the regional manager responsible for this property back to you on a pro rata basis. You got to ask those questions when you hire your management company. So on this property, I was not going to have a man, uh, a regional manager that I was going to build back, so to speak, to the property. So there's nothing there. You have a manager. You have an assistant manager. You have a leasing professional, lead maintenance, assistant maintenance, make ready. You have a porter. The porter is the person that goes around and picks up the grounds. You know, he picks up all the empty beer bottles, the potato chip bags, the cigarette butts. That's what they do. They will usually clean and skim your pool as well. Probably not put the chemicals in it, but they're going to clean the pool for you. So that's what a porter is. So now I'm going to come in here, and I know in this respective submarket, a manager is probably going to cost me 50 This is before payroll liability, uh, meaning all the payroll taxes, insurance, bonuses, all that, all the commissions. That's a 100-unit property. So I thought, you know, on this one, I know where it is. I felt I needed a part-time uh, individual to work with the manager. And I thought I'd be able to get somebody for that for $19,500 a month. I mean, a year. 
Come down here. I don't think I need a separate leasing agent, so I just leave it zero. Lead maintenance, $50,000. It's a 100-unit property. I think it's in good enough shape. I don't need more than the one person. The rule of thumb here is for every 80 to 100 units, you can afford one full-time person to work inside in the office, leasing, management, all that. And you can afford one full-time person outside to do grounds, to do all the work orders, to do all the unit turnovers, and all that. Right. So I think I can run this hundred unit property with one maintenance person, but I do want a little bit more help inside. So I've given the manager a part time associate. So all this added together is one hundred and nineteen thousand five hundred. I'm going to pay 30 percent to workman's comp, to bonuses, to insurance, to commissions, to payroll taxes. All that's going to average about 30 percent. So. 30% of 119,500 is 35,850. So my total payroll, I project to be 155,350. That's what's over there. It uh, fills itself in. You don't have to worry about it. It's white. Don't touch it. Okay. Now you've got utilities. That's going to come straight off of their PL. Repair and maintenance. You're going to make some assumptions here. Um, admin, that is, you know, to run your office, you know, paper clips, printer paper, printer ink. Do you rent a printer instead of buying it yourself? There's all kinds of things. Your software to run the property, your, um, what else? Your phone, your internet, all that stuff goes into admin. Marketing, 24,000. That's to, to advertise the property, either using locators or using Google, using Facebook ads, uh, brochures that you might print to hand out, uh, signs that you might want to put out on the, on the street. That's all your marketing. Contract services, again, it's white. I've got a table over here for it. So it's going to factor it all in for you. Each property will be different. Um, you might have a property that's in the hood that has nothing green around it anywhere. So there is no landscaping expense. I don't know if I'd want to buy that, but it's possible. Pool service. Maybe you don't have a pool on your property. Maybe you have four pools on your property. That $4,000 might be enough, might not be enough. It's going to differ by property. Pest control. My rule of thumb is it's going to be $2 per unit per month. And then multiply by that that by 12 months to get my annual number. I'm going to come up with my number there. My pool phone. Again, this is the emergency phone that somebody needs to be able to push if somebody's drowning to get uh, EMS dispatched. If you don't have a pool, you won't have this phone. Security. Is it in a rougher part of town? If it's not, if it's in a pristine area behind locked gates, nobody, there's no crime ever. There's never been anybody have anything happen ever. Well, then you probably don't need security. So you would wipe that out. If you're buying in the hood and you think it's going to cost you to have somebody on your property every single day with an M16 in their hand because it's that dangerous, you probably better spend $5,000 a month on that. So that's going to be $60,000 a year. Security here, I'm allotting $2,000 a month or $24,000 a year. Alarm services, this is your ADT alarm pads. Fire uh, key control, this is if you have a lockbox for all of your keys that work on scanning the irises of your eye or your fingerprints, your thumbprints. It's another safety measure that we use on all of our properties to make sure we know who checked what key out, when they checked it out, when they brought it back. If there's a missing key, we know who checked it out. You don't have to have that. It's just an added safety measure we like to take. Fire alarm. Do you have uh, property fire alarms, uh, fire alarm monitoring? If you don't, a lot of your older properties, you won't. Fine, put a zero. Washer and dryer rentals, right? It's a contract that I've signed with an outside provider that I get to provide my tenants 
with washers and dryers. I have to pay them for that. Now, remember, I'm going to mark that up so I make a little bit of money on it. I'm going to capture that in the income. This is the expense side of it. Some other things you might have. You might have elevators that you have to take care of. Um, you might have boiler service that you have to uh, have maintained monthly. There's all kinds of other things that might be in there. So again, you need to add the things or subtract the things that are right for your property. Professional fees, that's going to be your tax uh, your tax prep each year. It's going to run you somewhere between $1,500 and $2,500 a year, most likely. I roll into this number. Also, all of my uh, my eviction costs, that will run in there. Now, I can charge the resident that I'm evicting for the court fees that I'm having to pay, the legal fees I'm having to pay, but I have to account for the full expense, and then I will address recouping that money and the income if I charge it back to the person being evicted. But that's what goes into professional fees for me. Down below, this is pretty obvious, right? Property insurance. That'll be liability. That will be um, things, you know, if we have um, – if we have this big snowstorm that came through this ice storm, if you have water damage, if you have all kinds of other things, this is to protect your property. Your lender's not going to give you money if you don't have it insured. So you'll have to have insurance. You have your property taxes. We talked about franchise tax, and this is your offsite management fee. What that is, it's not your property manager, as you see in the payroll table. This is the property management company that is going to manage that manager for you. This is a totally different line item. You have to pay both things. You have to pay the property's payroll, but you also have to pay the property management company to manage the property for you, right? Typical on a 100-unit property is usually going to be 3 or 4%. So I put 3% in my rate column here because that's what it typically is for a 100-unit property where I own. Um, so you've got all of your variable expenses, all of your fixed expenses, you're going to add all of that up now. You have 409000 in variable, 434 in fixed. Those two added together, you get total operating expenses of $843,775 or broken down by unit because that's the way this industry works. It's $8,438 per unit per year. So if you come over to your projections, your main tab, eighty-four thirty-eight. You have 8,438 in your current column. Remember, this is white. You're not touching this. This is populating from your takeover budget tab. Come back to this. Now I have a pro forma column as well. I have to make some assumptions. I think by the end of the first year, I will have had one uh, round of reviews for my employees and raises. I think my payroll will go up by 3%. As you see, the formula, it's white. Don't touch it. Next thing, same thing. I think most everything will go up by 3%. So I just carry that across to every different line. Now down here, property taxes in Austin, Texas. Well, this one was actually in San Antonio, Texas. I know they have been very, very aggressive on a year-by-year -year basis. And my increases have been way more than the, the traditional 3%, the historical average 3%. So I'm assuming that my property taxes are going to go up 10%. So you could take your property taxes, multiply it by 1.1, which is a 10% increase. So, you know, so this is all of my pro forma. I think by the end of the first year, I will be paying $8,918 a month. I mean, I'm sorry, per unit per year in expenses. You come back to the first page, and 
go. There's your number. That's why all of this is white. You are not to touch this. It's all going to populate from takeover budget. Okay. So that basically is the whole thing. Now here I've calculated your NOI. You take basically your income from above. These are just numbers coming from your first page where we built out our income. $1,473,660 in income. You're going to take from that your expenses, $843,775. It's going to leave you with your NOI of $629,884. Remember, NOI is your profit before you pay your non-operating expenses and your debt service, your principal and your interest. Okay, That's mainly what you need to know here. So let's come back to the first page. So now we've talked about income. We've talked about expenses. And now the next is that resulting NOI. Now, remember, NOI is nothing more than operating income minus operating expenses, and that gets you to your NOI. So in your pro forma column, F, your income was $1,473,000. You subtract from that $891,765, and you get pro forma uh, NOI of $581,894. Again, I broke it down by month because I want to know monthly what my target is, what I should be hitting on a monthly basis. So I've got that there. Now, the next thing is debt service coverage ratio. This is the way the bank is going to lend. For you to get a loan on these properties in today's market, you're almost guaranteed going to need 1.25 to be this number. What that means is you take your NOI or your profit that you're going to have to be able to make that loan payment, right? So your profit, your NOI was $581,894. You're going to divide that by your annual debt service, your mortgage divided by 581,962. That is 0.99988. So basically it's one point, right? So your NOI is basically exactly equal to your debt service. It needs to be at least 125 or above, or the lender is not going to give you money to do this deal. They're just not. So that 1.25 means you have 25% more in NOI than you have in debt service. So you have a cushion to be able to you know, efficiently, effectively pay that mortgage for your lender. If you don't have it at 125 or higher, they're not going to feel comfortable with you, and they're not going to lend to you. So you think, okay, well, you're telling me that, Bruce, so nobody's going to lend to me. You're right. They're not. Nobody's going to lend to you on this. Uh, if you go to Fannie and Freddie, for sure. So how do I fix that? Well, first of all, this property might not work. Maybe you don't want to fix that. Well, but I, I do like it. Well, how do I make this work? Well, then there's a couple of levers you can pull. You can come up here. You can change your purchase price, right? Let's say you think, well, it only works for me if I offer them $12 million. It doesn't work at thirteen five. Uh, well, my debt service coverage ratio is still only 1.21. I know the lender is going to require 1.25 or they won't lend. Okay, that didn't work. Well, what else can I do? Well, let's say if I put more money down, now my debt service goes down. I have a smaller debt payment to make because I put more money down. I got a smaller loan. So let's say I take my down payment down up to 25% from 20. Okay, well, now I'm good. Right? My debt service coverage ratio now is 1.29. The goal for the lender is 1.25. So I exceed that. So I could probably get this deal done. Are they really going to sell it to me for 13.5? I don't know. Probably not. That's a massive difference from 13.5 to 12 million. But again, it's just 
pulling levers to see what do I need to do to make this deal work? This is what needs to be done for me to feel comfortable buying this deal. You take that to the broker. Hey, this is the best I can do. Sorry, Bruce, we're not going to sell it to you for that. Fine. Move on to the next property. Okay. But that's what debt service coverage ratio is. <clears throat> next thing down are your non-operating expenses. So this is outside of the NOI. So this is stuff you pay um, from whatever's left over after you pay uh, after you pay your operating expenses. This is going to be stuff, your mortgage interest, your principal reduction, your asset management fee, because these are all expenses not needed for the day-to-day -day operation of the property. These are still expenses you're going to incur, but they're not to run the property, right? The mortgage interest, the principal reduction, that isn't to run the property, but that is to service the debt that you had to take out to buy the property. So they're non-operating. Okay, so you've got your asset uh, management expense, your property management expense, your property management company. That is a fee paid to a company to manage the day-to-day -day operations of the property. That is an operating expense. The asset management fee, that is not for the day-to-day -day operations on site of the property. It's the higher level, corporate level, if you will, um, asset management fee to make the big picture decisions. Um, so that's that. Then you've got your replacement reserves. And I put $250 per unit per, uh, per year for your replacement reserves. What your replacement reserves are, your lender is going to say, I'm going to give you a loan, but I think all the, the condition of the property, we're going to come out and we're going to study it. We're going to say, we think you have about five years left in your roof. You have about 15 years left in your, um, in your parking lot before it has to be redone, you might have another seven years before you have to repaint your property. So they're going to come through and look at every single piece of your property, every aspect of your property, and they're going to develop a table of how much useful life is left when they think you're going to have to address those major systems. And they're going to divide that out and say each month, each year, I should say, you're going to have to give me $250 per unit and somewhat of a savings account that you can only use to repair these items that we think are going to wear out while you have this loan with us. If you have a 10-year loan, they're going to say, within the 10 years, these are the things that we think are going to be need to be revisited, repaired, fixed, replaced, whatever. So we're going to make you set this money aside in a savings account. It's going to be held in escrow with your lender. If your lender does not require you to do this, you damn well better do this because if you don't and you start having, you know, your, your parking lot starts to fail and you have park, uh, uh, potholes everywhere, you have to have money to repair that stuff. You can take it out of cash flow, but that's not an efficient way to run this property. These are one time, I shouldn't say one time, they come up from time to time, but they're major expenses that are not for the day-to-day -day operating of the property. You know, the park, parking lot might need to be repa uh, repaired in year five. Well, that's not the day-to-day -day operation of the property. That's a capital expenditure that you have to make in year five to repair it. That's all the replacement reserves are. You go out and you do the work to repair the parking lot. You submit your receipts and your invoices showing that you got the work done and you did pay for the work. They will say, okay, good. That was one of the things that we were having you set aside money to fix. We will return that money to you. But if you notice, you had to pay that money up front first to the contractor to do it. Then you submit receipts. Then you get reimbursed for it. That's the only way this is going to work. So you have to account for that stuff. CapEx, 
again, capital expenditures that you're going to spend on a month-to-month basis uh, to replace carpet, to replace flooring, to replace a water heater that blew up. These are large ticket items usually that are going to not be part of the operating expense structure. These are, again, you know, I don't want to say one-time expenses because you're going to continually be repairing these things. But these are all things your CPA can help you with that. Your bookkeeper can help you with that. I can't go through every single item, but basically they are large ticket items that you're allowed to put below the NOI line. The NOI is how you value your property. You want to keep your NOI as high as you can possibly keep it for valuation purposes when you go to sell. So these are legally allowed things that you could put below the NOI line. So it technically doesn't affect your value, but you have to account for, I'm going to have to replace a water heater every once in a while. You know, a bathtub will fail. I might have to replace an appliance every once in a while. These are larger ticket items that you're going to have to account for, but you preserve your NOI by putting them below the line. Okay. So you've got your total non-operating expenses. On a yearly basis, now you come up here to 86, says principal reduction. You have a bunch of zeros. Well, what the hell? Well, because in this scenario, my pro forma, which was the first year of my ownership, the first three years, I'm going to get an interest-only loan, meaning the first three years, I don't have to make principal payments to the lender. They've agreed to lend me money, but I don't have to start making principal payments until year four, right? So year four, I have to add the principal reduction back in because I have to start making that payment. The first three years, I don't, right? That's why you have zeros here. <clears throat> so again, you have your totals. You see your totals went from $387,000. The last year, I don't have to play, pay principal. The year I have to pay principal, it jumps up dramatically by $170,000. That's why. Next. We're getting close to the end. I promise we're at an hour 24. If we don't get completely through it today, guys, we will pick it up where we left off to start the next episode next Friday. So next we're on number 99, profitability. So this is your profitability table. You're going to look at the property's cash flow on an annualized basis. Okay. So this first one, $239,587. All we did to get there. If you look up here, in the formula uh, bar, there is a formula there. It's all white. You don't touch it, right? It's going to factor all that for you. So what happens is you take your income. Okay, go up to the very top. Take your operating income, $1,473. You're going to start subtracting things. You have to pay. You have to spend money to maintain this property. So you have to take out $849,000 from it. Then you have to take, so you get your NOI of 624.060. Then from that, you have to take out all of your non-operating expenses, 384000 That leaves you with net property cash flow. That's the amount of money generated on this projection annually that you can then reserve to bulk up some of your reserve accounts to fund some additional rehab projects if you choose, or this is distributable cash flow if you choose to send it out. I choose to send this money out, right? So I have $240,000 roughly that I made in profit that year. The property cash on cash return, that $239,000, if you divide that by the amount of money you had to bring to the table to purchase this property, your total cash raise, which was roughly $4 million, right? 
that cash flow number of $239,000 is roughly 6% of the money you had to spend to buy the property. So you have a 6% cash on cash return for that year as a projection. I'm a syndicator. In this deal, I'm going to take a 15% promote. So I have to figure out what that is. The promote dollars on 239000 is 35000 So my promote on an annual basis would be roughly 36000 I have to take that out of the annual cash flow from the property. So 239, I got to take out 35. The net cash flow left to be distributed to the investors is 203,000. That's a 5.11% return versus a 6% for the property. To the investor, it's a 5.11% return. There's your resulting cap rate. Remember cap rate is only your profit divided by your purchase price, your valuation, that's all it is, right? So it's a 5.2. As you see, it goes up every single year because we get a little more profitable every year, but you have the exact same uh, purchase price. The purchase price doesn't change. The profitability goes up. So this number will grow as your profitability goes up. That's what's going on with the cap rate. So that's how all that works. If you do not show your investor, now your investor is not gonna see this spreadsheet if you're smart. Feel free to share it if you choose. There's nothing wrong with that, but it tends to create more questions than it gives answers. People's eyes gloss over, like many of you listening now, maybe. There's a lot of information to, to try to absorb. I, I want you guys to go watch this over and over and over and over again until it becomes second nature for you. But if you share all this with your prospective investors, most of them won't be able to keep up with it, follow it. They're going to have all kinds of sometimes baseless questions because they just don't understand it. You should create a glossy, uh, probably PDF actually, um, nice offering memorandum that will get pictures, projections, uh, the business plan, um, your background, all that. You're going to distill all this information down into some, some key points that you can share with your investors. This is more for you to know how this uh, deal is going to work out. So now are the return projections. So this one was all about your cash flow, right? That whole little table there was about your cash flow. The next one down now is going to be return projections. Okay. So this is going to be your total return, your total return percentage, your total annualized return, and your equity multiple. And it's going to be broken down by year again. This first column here, this was the way the current owner is running it. So we're not going to make a lot of projections on that because we're not going to run it that way anymore. This is your years one through 10 of your ownership, right? So you have your total value based on your NOI divided by your cap rate, right? I put what's your assumption of cap rate when it's time to go sell or refinance this property. You better be conservative here. If you buy it at a five cap, don't run this number at a two cap. Oh, interest rates are going to keep going down and cap rates will keep going down. And I, I you know, for this deal to work, it has to get to a 2%. Dude, that's not going to happen. Now, it could it's probably not going to happen. Don't make reckless assumptions here. Again, you need a good coach or mentor that's familiar with your area, or at the very least, you need to reach out to some brokers and find out what they think in years one, five, 10, wherever you think it's going to be. What do they think cap rates may do in the future? And you need to, you need to have an educated approach to this. Don't just put in a number that makes this deal work. 
Because if that number doesn't hit, if you can't sell this at a two cap when you get ready to sell it, and that's the only way this deal works, well, you just screwed up and you're going to look really bad to your investors. Okay. I think I'm going to assume cap rates will go up for a problem from one to three years. That's my belief, but I have to be conservative. I'm going to assume that while I bought it at roughly a five cap, right? I'm going to assume it's going to go up by the time I go to sell it to a five or a six, I mean, to a six cap, right? So I'm going to put a six in there. If you notice, when I changed this six cap in blue, it changed the six in the next box over. So if I put this down to a four, it will automatically change the four right there. This is white. Don't touch it. This is blue. Put in there what you think is appropriate. Be conservative, right? So at a six cap, that makes the property, let's say, at the end of the third year, right? So this is the end of the third year column, right? I think it's going to be worth $11,794,000. From that, there's going to be a cost to sell this. I got to pay commissions and fees, legal fees. So I think I'm going to net $11.4 million in the sale. I have to pay off the original loan. I have to pay back my investors their initial investment. Then I'm left with my actual profit from sale. If I sold at the end of the third year, assuming a six cap, I would lose money by doing that. So I can't sell then. It makes no sense. It doesn't. So that's year one, two, three, four, five, six. It takes to the end of year seven for me to generate enough profit on this property to be able to sell and not lose money, right? So the end of that seventh year, the expected profit is $182,000. Well, that's pretty crappy. That is not good at all. So, but that's the way this kind of chart, this table works. You're going to take your sales price. You're going to, you know, pay your commissions and fees and you're going to pay off the loan. Then you're going to pay off the capital accounts from the investors and you're going to be left with a net profit. And that's how we're going to get all of these numbers. And you got to decide with everything the way it is, does this deal work for an investor? Well, if not, then there's no sense in going after this deal. You can't sell this to an investor. Nobody's going to want a piece of this property. You come down to the IRR table. Uh, if we sell at the end of year one, the numbers are so bad, it can't even calculate it. The second year, um, the second year you project to lose 27%. The third year, losing 5%. The fourth year, losing 8.8%. So you don't so this is a deal, right? <laughs> this is a slamming deal, brother. Woo! So, Hopefully, that was a lot of information to try to unpack and go over. Um, we might spend some time in the future going over some individual aspects of it in more detail, but that's basically how I underwrite a project. As you see, this deal does not work. Even if I dropped, remember, I dropped the purchase price from 13.5 down to 12 million, and it still doesn't come close to working. For this work to work, I bet it's going to take a $9 million purchase price. Let's come down to the bottom. IRR, okay, that's a little too strong. So again, see- Hey, I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> exactly. See, th these blue boxes you can make changes to. So now that you have all of your inputs entered into the spreadsheet, now you can start trying to pull levers. What do I need to pay for this property for it to work? $10 million, no, did it again. Well, a $10 million purchase price. Well, what does that do? That gives me an IRR of 
12 percent 19 17 60 this deal works for me i can sell this to my prospective investors this is what my investors are looking for these are the returns that fit them well what does that do for them on their cash and cash cash flow hey they get an 8.56 by the end of the first year 8.94 10.64 wow it dropped why the hell did it drop two and a half points actually three points remember that's the year you had to first start paying principal that's why you have a big drop there. But even at 7.56, I could sell that to the investors. So that deal works. Now, am I going to take time to make an offer for $10 million on something they expect to get 13.5 for? Nope. I won't even who offer. Who would come that. in and pay 13.5 for that? I mean, obviously you didn't make an offer, but who would pay 13.5 for that? People do, dude. I'm telling you. So what's going on in Austin right now? You have people saying, and I was just at a, a mastermind over uh, this past week. And a guy was talking to me, he said, man, I've got investors, international investors that say, I do not give a shit what the return is. I what? don't want to lose money. I don't want to lose money. But within five years, if I'm at least break even, I don't care. I want a piece of Austin that badly because I know Austin's going to be a big deal in five years. It's going to keep growing like wildfire like it is. So, Fred, that's amazing. Austin, I don't care. So there are people out there that will pay this for this damn property. I promise you. It is not going to be me because I have to answer to a more reasonable investor that has. <laughs> yeah. Right. That it's actually wants crazy. to make some money. Yep. And that's why if you make a hundred offers, you might get five of them. If you make 10 offers, you may get one of them. There are a lot of people out there that have a different investment criteria than you do. If you are answering to investors, they're going to have an expectation of probably five to 6% by the end of the first year in cash on cash return. The IRR, they're probably going to want to be 10% or higher. Well, the competition might have no, you know, no requirement at all. They just want a piece of Austin or San Antonio or uh, Omaha or wherever you're buying. So that's how often, how often are you underwriting deals? You think when I'm going at it hard, um, I'm usually doing at least one or two a day because my inbox is flooded with deals. And it depends on how broad you're going to take your, your search. If you're only going to search in your own backyard, you're going to see, you might get a couple of deals a day. If you are saying, I'm interested in the entire southeastern part of the nation, you might get 20 deals a day, 50 deals a day. And I, I think next time we can go into some quick back-of-the-napkin approaches to not have to do this on every single property. Because your first deal, two, three deals that you run this spreadsheet through, it's going to take you hours to figure all this out. You're going to get to where you can do this in about a half hour to an hour, and you can get pretty quick. But I'll show you ways to look at it and go, oh, that doesn't even make sense to underwrite because it doesn't fit my initial pass on whether it's a good deal or not. So we'll go into more detail on that later. Yeah, that makes sense. And that'd be a good thing to, to go through just your, your back of napkin because I mean, the, the first thing that I noticed – based off of your back of napkin, you know, recommendations, those expenses per door seem really high. You know, I know we, whenever we look at projects, we try to keep it, what, 5,500 to 6,500 a, a door a year. And the, that was 8,500. So that stood out to me. Right. Okay. But may, so now maybe it's because it's a hundred units, right? Well, but that, that's totally dependent upon the, the property, the neighborhood, the city, and the, rent. the state also, Right, because the numbers you just talked about, that may have been a number good for Nashville, but not for Austin. My property taxes are insanely higher than yours are. So my That's expenses true. per door are gonna be dramatically higher. $8,000, right, because I cranked my purchase price down to 10 million. So it did drop my uh, expenses per unit per year. 
Because remember, it was originally $8,900. It came down to $7,900 because I'm paying taxes on a lower valuation now, right? So your, your expenses did come down. $8,000 is not out of line for Austin, Texas, San Antonio, Texas for this kind of a property because my taxes are so crazy high compared to yours. What is a better way to look at it? If you're buying a property, if you own a property that is not all bills paid, you're usually going to spend about 50 to 55% of your income on your operating expenses. If you notice pro forma, end of year two, end of year three, it's 53.8%, 54 and 52.3. So if I can buy so right in there. those are actually decent numbers. And as you yeah. saw, the returns worked as well. So, yeah, those are some uh, – they're rules of thumb. Everything's a rule of thumb, back of napkin, until you fully underwrite. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Bruce, that was great, man. Thanks for walking us through that spreadsheet. Again, if anybody watching uh, or listening to the podcast is interested in this spreadsheet, you can find it in the link in the description below. Uh, don't forget to like, subscribe, share the show with a friend, and we'll see you next week every Friday at 10 a.m. Central. Come in and ask your questions. We'll see you then. Later, boys and girls. Talk to you next week.